Good mornings. Good morning, Northlands Church, I should say. Let's try it again. Good mornings. Good morning, Northlands Church. We must have a couple uh, Georgia Bulldog fans in the house. I just feel that energy. I'm with you. I'm one of you. I was there yesterday, if you can kind of maybe hear it in my voice. A lot of shouting, a lot of yelling at the referees. Um, I thought about pivoting my message this morning on just how to not put our hope in a bunch of 18-year-olds playing a sport, but I won't. Um, Well, Tyler, thank you wherever you went for that amazing intro. Um, uh, Truly, as Tyler mentioned, uh, we've been a part, Brittany and, and my three kids, our three kids have been a part of this home for the last seven years, and it has been such a place of nourishment to our souls. And, um, you know, when it comes to leadership and culture, uh, great culture doesn't happen accidentally. It takes intentional stewardship. And Tyler and Nicole, I know Greg and Michelle are gone. Armando, the leaders of this house, you guys just do a fantastic job listening to the Lord, stewarding the calling of God on your lives. And so just so grateful. Much of what you're about to hear me share is just things you've, uh, I'm regurgitating that I've heard from the leaders of this house. So can we just give some honor to the leaders of this church? Well, if you don't know me or or you don't know me well, I will spare you my life story. Uh, You just heard Tyler mention the best part of my story, which is my beautiful wife, Brittany, and our three kids. Um, But I do want to share a little bit of my 2023 story and what's happened this year in my life and my family's life, because much of what I'm going to share this morning um, is really sourced from this journey I've been on with the Lord and, and my experiences this year. It actually started in March, right over in this corner. I have a picture of um, me baptizing my oldest son when we were doing baptisms back in March. I believe you can go ahead and put that picture on the screen. Which was uh, a beautiful morning for the church. I think we had over 40 or close to 40 baptisms that morning. Um, just a total celebration. I remember walking in and seeing this like line out the door for baptisms. And I was like, babe, we better order some Uber Eats or something because we're going to be here for a long time. But through the assembly line process of baptisms, we got through and it was awesome. And I had the opportunity to baptize my oldest son, Gunner. Um, and it was, a, again, a special moment for our family. But when I see that picture and when I look back on March, I can't help but think about what should have been um, that morning. And, and what I mean by that is a couple of weeks before uh, this, this baptism in March, I'd asked my father uh, to baptize my, my son. I have fond memories of my dad baptizing me when I was his age. My dad was called vocationally to the ministry. Um, He poured out his life for the kingdom. uh, And he was as much a spiritual father to me as he was a um, a biological one to me and my three brothers. And so I thought it'd be awesome to have him come and and baptize Gunner and get to experience that as a family. And, And unfortunately, the day before this picture was taken, I got a call from my mom who's here with us and said, son, I'm sorry, your dad's not gonna be able to make it. I had to take him to the ER today. He's been having some issues breathing, um, some issues with his lungs and, and dating back to when he was in his early 20s, uh, he, he, had, he was a college baseball player, great athlete, uh, started to date my mom and he got diagno- diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so he had radiation treatment then and thank God it killed the cancer. Uh, but the way radiation treatment was done in the 60s and 70s is very different than how it's done now, where it very much fried a lot of, a lot of him that um, kind of created some issues with his heart and his lungs, and, uh, which eventually caught up to him. So what we thought would be a couple days of him in the hospital, missing out on this big moment, but he'd be back with us, turned into a two-week struggle for his life, and he went to be with Jesus um, in early April. And so 
as hard of a year as it's been for our family, when you lose somebody you love, especially a hero, uh, it's just a deep season of grief. Those of you that have walked through that um, know what I'm talking about. But it's also, in a strange way, a sweet season of reflection on a life well lived or a race well run. And so as I've been in this season of reflecting on my dad's life, I've been asking a lot of the more meaningful questions. As again, I think we all do when we lose somebody we love. Or I'm like, what is the secret to life? What is it all about? So I studied my dad's journals. Um, I read letters that he has written over the years, old sermons that he preached. And I just spent time saturating my heart and my dad's legacy in his life. And here's the simple conclusion that I've come to. And it's so simple, it may even be comical, but I want you to stay with me because I'm gonna preach a whole sermon on it. And um, uh, at another point in time, I'd love to preach a whole sermon on my dad's life. I'm not gonna do that right now, but this is a principle extracted from my dad's life and extracted from other people's lives that I respect so much. And here it is. The secret to life is found in the secret place. The secret to life is found in the secret place. I think as believers, all the things we desire for flourishing for our souls is, starts with and is sourced from the secret place. To see God's kingdom expand, to see chains broken and strongholds destroyed, to see and love people the way Jesus does, to be at peace when everything around us is shaking, all of this and more is found in the secret place. And I got my hands again on my dad's journals and I got to see over the years his commitment to being alone with the Lord and wrestling through things with the Lord and beholding the Lord, and it was beautiful. I love this quote from, from John Ortberg. Anytime you see life flourishing, it is receiving nourishment from outside of itself. Anytime you see life flourishing, it is receiving nourishment from outside of itself. So often we wanna look at the fruit of somebody's life and we say we want that fruit. What often we don't see is beneath the surface, the roots of their life and where they're getting their nourishment from. So my goal this morning is very, very simple. I wanna stir up an even greater desire and thirst and hunger in our lives to go be with the Lord in secret. That's the goal. And I'm gonna talk some big picture things on why that matters, and then I'm gonna get really practical and tactical around how do we actually do that and what does that actually look like. So I just wanna stir up a desire uh, to be more with the Lord. And that's where we're gonna go. So can we go there this morning? We good with that? Yeah. Great, all right. I'm going to be preaching out of Jeremiah 17. So the, the main scripture I want to be reading is Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. And a little bit of context. This is a time in Israel's history. Of course, the Old Testament, Israel's history, they had been growing. They had seen a lot of success. And the prophet of Jeremiah was uh, prophesying to the leaders of Israel about their success. And it was a bit of a prophetic warning, if you will, around uh, what does it mean to live the right kind of life, a righteous life? And what, what uh, was happening in Israel is because of their success, they're living in this place where one foot was uh, in the kingdom still, but in some ways one foot was uh, in the world. They were starting to uh, experiment with idols and different things that Jeremiah then went to the Lord and said, Lord, help me speak a message to my people about the warning that comes from these things. So here it is, 17, five through eight. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. But here it is, here's the secret. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord, 
and have made the Lord their hope in confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that, roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. So I am no arborist. Uh, my wife is a gardener. We have a, a garden in our backyard and often before dinner, she'll send me out to get a different vegetable and I bring back the wrong one. So I'm not very, uh, very good at understanding plants. Um, but I did my research and there's a type of tree called the Akesha tree. Of course, this scripture is an illustration, an image, a metaphor of two different types of life, right? A, a kind of stunted life in the desert, a shrub, and then this beautiful tree that's living in the desert. And there's actually a real tree in the Middle East, which is uh, many believe is what's being referenced here called the Akesha tree. Here it is a great, a beautiful picture. And this tree is the national tree of Israel to this day. It's like the, their national tree. Um, and it's all across the Middle East. And what you see here is this lush, beautiful tree with, with fruit that's flourishing. But beneath it, obviously, to the naked eye, you don't see any water. So how is it possible that it's receiving its nourishment? Well, its roots are digging so deep that it's finding underground rivers or reservoirs. So just this beautiful picture of digging its roots deep in a very barren, um, barren area and climate. And so Jeremiah essentially lays, lays out in this scripture uh, 17, five through eight, lays out that there's this unavoidable fact of life. And then there's the ultimate question of our life. The unavoidable fact of life is that we all live in a desert. We all live in a tough environment. The world is cruel and tough. If you don't believe that, you probably just haven't lived long enough or you're not paying attention. So we live in this barren desert and he was prophesying this 2,500 years ago and it's still very much true today. Since sin entered the world and until Christ comes back, we live in a tough climate for our souls. But the ultimate question of life then that Jeremiah is laying out is that although we live in the desert, are we going to live for the desert or are we going to live from the desert? And so I want to talk about before we jump into the secret place and how we go to the secret place, I want to jump into uh, this desert and talk about the environment that we live in. And uh, I'm going to call it the public place. So if we should be getting to the secret place with Jesus, let's talk about where we live in the public place because the world has never been, if you're not paying attention, the world has never been more public or more obsessed with the public than ever before. In large part due to the three by five little electric device that you have in your pocket that we still call a phone, although that's like the one of a bajillion things we do with it is make calls. Uh, so let's go back in time. And I think we still have the middle schoolers in here. So they're going to like lose their mind on what I'm about to share. So I was born in uh, the 80s, but when I think of my childhood, I think of the 90s. So I was like a 90s kid. And I grew up in a time when the internet was like cutting edge and cool, but it wasn't yet convenient. You know what I mean? It kind of reminds me of like artificial intelligence right now, where it's like cutting edge and cool and eventually it's gonna change the world. But like until my little iRobot in our kitchen doesn't get stuck in 15 minutes, like I'm not, it's not very convenient to me. Uh, in terms of robots and artificial intelligence. So that was like what the internet was like in the 90s. And so we had this, uh, it was me, my three brothers, my parents living in this home. And in our living room, we had this desktop computer that was hooked up to a 56K modem. You guys remember the noises that it would make? And we had America Online, AOL. So let's go, this, this is like nostalgia lane right here. You remember? So, we would have to, like kids, again, I'm looking at the, the middle schoolers, like we would have to take turns. Whose turn was it to get on the internet? 
right? We would fight over it. We'd have, my parents would have to schedule it. And uh, the, the most inconvenient thing was not how slow the internet was, or at least for our house, not how slow the internet was. And it also wasn't the fact that it took like three minutes to get connected, but it was that we had only one phone line in our house. You, you remember this? All my 90s kids are just nodding, nodding their head right now. So like I would be three hours in to a download of a song on Napster, like one song, <laughs> one song. And then my mom wouldn't know I'm on the computer. She'd come home and she'd pick up the phone to make a call. And it would say like unconnected or internet interrupted. And I'd be like, mom, I'm halfway through uh, the Backstreet Boys album. Why can, why can you not pay attention when you get on the phone? So anyways, inconvenient, but pretty cool. When I fast forward to 2000s, real briefly, I remember the 2000s when I was a, a senior in high school, I got Facebook on my laptop. I think we had DSL internet, so a little bit faster. And I remember I'd have to take digital camera pictures uh, over the weekend of like my friends when we were hanging out. And then I'd have to go then plug the digital camera into the computer and then I would upload the pictures. And by the time you'd plug it in, you'd see that everybody's eyes were red from the flash. You guys remember that in the camera? So again, it, it was this day and age where internet was on the rise. We were connected in the public place, but nowhere near how connected our lives are to the public place today. We are so connected to the public place and our lives are so public that CDC and the WHO have recently uh, continued to release what they call the IAD, Internet Addiction Disorder. When I was in the 90s, I couldn't get addicted to the internet if I wanted to. <laughs> but yet our kids, and I would say us as adults, were so connected that we don't even understand what it's doing to us. We don't understand. And so why the CDC and the WHO are so interested, especially in the next generation of the impact of kids growing up with devices and kids growing up so connected is that there's no, uh, it's not accidental that we see the rise in mental illness rising at the same rate as this internet addiction. So let me just read you guys some stats real quick on internet addiction disorder. People touch their phones and I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands if you fit in this category, people touch their phones on average 2,617 times per day. That doesn't mean you're using it, but you're touching it. The average U.S. consumer spends a whopping five hours a day on these devices. This is a 20% increase in time spent compared to 2015. So 20%, this study is from this last year. It's a 20% increase compared to 2015. Um, and again, that's a, as you think about it, that's a third of our awake hours. 70, <laughs> this might've been a translation issue. So bear with me on this because it was the WHO website, which is like a global organization. 75% of Americans use their smartphones to go to the bathroom. I think it should say you, you use it while going to the bathroom, <laughs> unless there's an app or something that I'm not aware of. All right, let's talk about the next generation. Teens, according to research from Common Sense Media, teens average seven hours and 22 minutes of screen time per day. 70%, this is, gets into like the mental, mental health, mental illness, 70% felt left out or excluded when using social media. 43% have deleted social media posts due to receiving too few likes. 35% reported experiencing cyberbullying. So let me be really, really clear. I'm not anti-technology. We're not gonna like do an altar up here where we like throw our iPhones in and <laughs> light them on fire. 
Uh, I, I actually don't think technology is good or evil. I think it accelerates good or evil. I could list just as many stats, the amazing things technology has done for modern society. I could talk about economically what it's done for, for economic growth. I could talk about, um, I could talk about uh, uh, medical advances. I mentioned my dad getting treated in the 70s for, for cancer. And he was able to live till he's 68 because of techno technological medical advances. I mean, I just love, this is simple, but uh, those of you that travel a lot for work like me understand like the beauty of being on the road and being able to FaceTime your kids from your hotel room and stay connected with your kids. So again, technology is accelerating good. But what I really wanna talk about for our souls is this like at G4 speed, what's being accelerated into our souls. Hate and bullying, pornography, violence, materialism, disinformation, burnout and confusion. I mean, I think about any given Sunday. I'll think about this Sunday. Just go there with me for a second. All the different things that are being fed to me and to us, the constant dopamine hits that are rushing through our brain. I mean, I could feel like in one minute I can open an email uh, from, uh, from work and feel like I'm, you know, crushing it because I just closed a deal or I got kudos from my boss. And then the next I could toggle over to Instagram and see that there was a Christmas party the night before that I was wondering why I didn't get invited to and feeling inadequate because of it. I can, from a security standpoint, check my 401k account and my savings account. And when the markets are up, think I'm gonna retire by the time I'm 50. And then when the markets are down because the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again, thinking I'm gonna work until I'm 90. From a safety standpoint, we can sit on the couch watching sports, watching football, doing fantasy football on one app, and then the next second get a text from a friend who's into some weird political things and sends us a, a Twitter thread about a war happening 5,000 miles away and we think the apocalypse is happening tomorrow. The differences, the swinging back and forth and what's happening. So here's the main point I'm trying to make as it pertains to the public place and the secret place. In terms of nourishment to our souls, the public place is offering our souls a cheap meal. Meanwhile, the secret place is offering us a feast at the king's table. So we gotta live in the public place. Ain't nothing changing that, right? But if we're getting our nourishment from it, and that is the sole source of our nourishment, at best, we're this tiny little shrub. At worst, we're dead. And we need to dig our roots, our roots down deep. And we need to understand that the Father is offering us a feast at the table. So we have to get to the secret place. So first, what I wanna do is I wanna jump into what do we find in the secret place? So back to the secret place. What do we actually find when we spend time with the Lord alone? What do we find? If this was a, uh, if the secret place was like a cereal box and it had a food label on the back, these are the things that we would find in terms of nourishment. What are we expecting? So number one, the first thing we should expect when we go spend time with the Lord is a restored, a restored identity, a restoring of our identity. Now, I'm gonna get, again, tactical. I'm gonna get into some things that we can do. And I just wanna like set the record straight in terms of it could feel maybe if I'm misunderstood, like I'm drifting into like workspace theology or earning your salvation. Here's the way that I like to think about it. Yes, we have been adopted into the royal family. If you're in Christ, we have been adopted into the royal family and praise God for that. If you've surrendered your life and our eternity is secure and nobody can take that away from us, but there is a difference in being adopted into the royal family and learning how to live as royalty. All right, does that make sense? There's a difference in being adopted into a family where not, that can, your name will never be changed and actually learning how to live in that family. 
And that's why we have the Holy Spirit. And when we commune with the Lord of the secret place, we are being taught how to live as royalty. A few verses that speak to me on this topic, because this is a process of continual renewing and restoring our identity. Colossians 3.10, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. I love this. You guys have heard this, but it's just, just go there again. 11, 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, this process, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, rest from the desert. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Guys, I wish I could just go to the gym once and be like shredded the rest of my life. I wish, you can't. And yes, I get my identity is secure up here, but there's a process of making it real to me here. All right? I need a daily, a regular yoke adjustment. I mean, the stuff of life just gets stuck on you. The lies of the enemy. The enemy's out there laying traps for us, is using those devices, like I just mentioned, our phones and others to feed us lies. And I, we need to put on the yoke of Christ. For me, everything changes when I'm living out of my true identity. Like everything changes. And when I'm not, it's not pretty. You can ask my wife. She knows it. I mean, it is amazing. I learned this early on in our marriage, how I can respond to the same stimulus, the same thing, two completely different ways, depending on when I'm walking in my identity and when I'm not. So my wife and I got married when we were young. We were high school sweethearts. We were, um, she is so nervous right now. What I'm about to say. She, uh, she, we were uh, you know, completely aligned from a value standpoint and worldview and faith, but we could not have been more different from our personality standpoint. The Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, all the different assessments we take, we're always like polar opposites. And, it, and it's cute, right? Because they say opposites attract. We hear that. But this, there's a second part to that statement is opposites attack. So they attract. And then when they live in close quarters, they attack. And so our first year of marriage, we're living in this tiny apartment. We're, we're still in college, um, living in this tiny apartment, doing school and work in Dunwoody. And we shared this really small bathroom and like not, not dual vanity bathroom, like just small bathroom. And I'm the type of person that I love uh, like order, right? My wife, if again, I'm my old identity, I say she loves chaos, that's my old identity. But what she really loves, she's spontaneous. She is so good, you put her in any room, she's the best conversationalist you'll ever meet. She's adaptable and it's beautiful. And so what happens is when we're living in tight quarters, like I, you know, I use something like I, I use my toothbrush, I put it up, but I'm done. I, I changed my clothes, almost to take off my clothes and, and that would have changed my clothes. It was like, where are you guys going to this marriage example? Uh, <laughs> I changed my clothes, I put them up. My wife's ph philosophy is like, I'll just get around to it eventually. So I would get in, you know, in the morning I'd wake up, I'd go into our tiny little bathroom, I'd turn on the lights, I'd open my eyes and I'd be like tripping over her clothes. And when I'm in my identity, when I know whose I am, I can engage with her in that throughout the day with patience, with kindness, with the fruits of the spirit. I'll even, now it's not ideal. Like I still would love for her to put her clothes up, but I could maybe nudge her gently to say, hey babe, do you mind like putting your clothes up? Or I could, I could um, you know, I can even pick up after her and serve her. 
But when I'm like, the stuff of life has gotten in the way and I'm in my old identity, it's like an existential crisis to our marriage. <laughs> Am I the only one? Am I the only one here in terms of relationships? It's like the same event, two completely different responses. And I think the truth of this is this is like the public place where our culture tells us this huge lie. And I'm just amazed at how it's embraced right now. Like, do you, right? Do what makes you feel right. Live your truth. Here's the problem. I'm pretty emotionally stable, I think. There's like 10 me's inside of me. And you never know which one you're gonna get. So I'm not gonna let the public place tell me which one to be, right? That's dangerous. I'm gonna let the, my savior, my Lord, tell me whose I am and my identity. And I'm gonna live out of that. So again, the renewing or the restoring of our identity is this process. Yes, we're adopted into the royal family, but we are now learning to live as royalty. All right, number two, move quick. Renewed strength, renewed strength. You know, I've learned this in my walk with the Lord that often I come out and I think we should, we cry out to him our needs, what we want him to do. We ask for miracles and I love that, but sometimes one of the best miracles the Lord can do is just give you strength so that you can go fix it yourself. I've learned that again, like that there's times where the Lord just got to move because I know I can never do it myself, but there's often times where I'm asking him to fix things and really I need to change my prayer. Like God, just give me strength to face the day so that I can co-labor with you to fix things. In 1 Samuel 30, uh, we get a great picture of David, this process of renewing his strength to go into battle. Uh, David was living in Ziglag outside of the nation of Israel at the time. He was, uh, by, by Samuel, he was anointed king, but he was not yet king. Saul was still in king, was king, was threatened by David's potential kingship. And so he was living outside of the nation of Israel with a bunch of followers who knew he would be king. And, and so they left for a couple days to go fight a battle. They left their kind of home outpost town. And then that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel 30. So here we go. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziglag, they found that the Amicalites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziglag. They had crushed Ziglag and burned it to the ground. So again, David and his men return home to their outpost where all the things that they value are there and they see it completely destroyed. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David was now in great danger. So again, he's alone. He lost everything he loves. And now his men are beginning to turn on him. So David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. But I love this, the main point, but David found strength in his Lord and his God. And I think we read that sometimes in scripture. That's why I love that we have the Psalms. We read that like David gets in this mess and this pickle, everybody wants to kill him. And he's like, all right, God, give me strength. Boom, charge into battle. But it's actually this process of him going by himself, going to the secret place, wrestling with the Lord. We hear things like David saying, my tears are my food. God, I am so depressed right now. I need your strength. And of course we know the rest of the story, David goes on and crushes his enemies with strength from the Lord. So again, restoring our identity is the first thing we should expect in terms of nourishment, a renewal of strength. And then lastly, elevated wisdom, elevated wisdom. You know, I, I'm a big believer in, in sourcing wisdom from all different places. I think all truth is God's truth. I think there's people in our lives, books, podcasts in our lives that we should be getting wisdom from. And we should, we should not hesitate to ask for advice and ask for wisdom. 
But I think in the secret place, what we get is this elevated wisdom where we, when there's times where the Lord uh, shows us from his vantage point, what he sees, where we're asking God to say, God, show me what you see. Give me that elevated wisdom. And again, I think the normal prayer of God, tell me what to do. Like I need wisdom, God, tell me what to do. But sometimes God's playing this long game and we just need to get invited or we need to invite God into sharing to us so that we can play the long game with him and understand. You know, I had this mentor that I met with for um, still meet with once a month. And he would always ask me this question. He was a very successful business leader. Um, He loved Jesus, had a lot of success in the business world. I go to him and ask him, hey, we're thinking about acquiring this company or or we're thinking about changing our organizational structure. We're thinking about doing this or that. And he would just, before he would give me any advice, he'd say, Stephen, have you been spending time alone in the secret place? He would ask me that question. And then as often the thing he would say is, Stephen, what's on your scorecard? Is it business success or is it character development? Is it business success or is it character development? And he can give me all the advice and tell me, you should, yeah, do that, buy that company or don't buy that company. But at the end of the day, if my posture, my heart is not in the right place, it's fleeting. So yes, get this wisdom up here, but I think the elevated wisdom allows us to go deeper. When I, when I say the long game, what I mean by that is to God, it's not as much about taking you somewhere as it is making you into someone. To God, it's not as much about how do I do this? Should I go right here at this cross or go left here at this crisscross? It's not as much about that as it is who he's making you into. And elevated wisdom allows us to do that. All right, let's move to, I'm gonna get more tactical and, and kind of go rapid fire. You guys with me? We good? We good? We need to do like jumping jacks or something? On a, that'd be the first time. Everybody stand up for me for just to stand up. Can we just stand up for a second? I'm not going to make you do jumping jacks. This has never happened before at Northlands, and I actually want it to. Just turn to your neighbor and give him a high five. Just do that and say, I love you. All right. That's all. Some of you got so nervous. I could see it in your eyes. You're like, what? is about to happen. So, Tyler, you can use that one whenever you want. There's a, there's a little licensing fee, like a trademark cost if you want to use that one. So we just talked about what do we find in the secret place? Let's get tactical. How do we actually, what's our posture when we go to the secret place? Uh, pastor up in New York that, that um, I respect and admire a, a ton, John Tyson, uh, did this whole series called God Comes Where He's Wanted. God comes where he's wanted. Um, So I believe God honors these things. Again, this is not about earning, but I do think there is some effort required uh, in this. So number one, go with consistency. When we're talking about going to the secret place, like I mentioned with the gym, we got to go with consistency. You know, I learned this principle of um, hoisting the sail is what, what I call it, where we don't ultimately, God is God. There's a mystery to God. We don't understand when God moves and when he doesn't. We don't understand when he brings the wind and why or why not. But it's our responsibility to hoist the sail to try to catch the wind. And what I've learned is the more I hoist the sail, the more likely I'm gonna catch the wind, right? So hoisting the sail from, a, from I believe, from a daily practice of spending time. Uh, I went through in 2011, I went through uh, the walk through the Bible in a year. Okay, so I was early on in my marriage. It was about that time we were having existential crises in our marriage over uh, clothes on the floor. And I never in my life um, had a really consistent 
uh, habit and rhythm of spending time with Jesus. It was like, yeah, I was in Bible studies. Yeah, I'd come to church on Sunday. Yeah, from occasionally, if I really had this big prayer request, I'd go to Jesus, but I didn't have a, a regular habit of hoisting the sail. And so I read through the Bible in the year. I did it with a couple guys. And I, I, I got to tell you, I'm not being hyperbolic. Top five greatest decisions of my life. Top five greatest decisions of my life. And it's not because Leviticus just blew me away. <laughs> I had to push through, but I built the discipline of hoisting the sail and it stayed with me. So maybe, hey, we're coming up on New Year's resolutions and goals. Maybe you've thought about it. I just encourage you. You know what, guys, too? Listen, let me call it for what it is. Sometimes it feels like you're just going through the motions. Hoisting the sail when the wind doesn't come is frustrating from time to time, but you get in the habit of doing it. And I think that's what matters. Number two, go with focus. It's called the secret place for a reason. Got to go with focus. Got to eliminate distractions. Your environment matters. I've learned this. I I have a little home office uh, that I'll work from from time to time. And the problem I started realizing was that was my secret place, but it also had uh, financials for the company on it. And it also had sticky notes of things reminding me of what I needed to do for work. And so I'd go open my Bible in the secret place, and then I'd look at financial statements. So I had to kind of change things up for my rhythm and get to a different place. I have a little leather couch now that's separate away from that, or a little chair that I sit in. And that, like my, my brain knows it's priming my mind for what's about to happen. So go with focus, go with expectancy. Again, I, I believe you get what you expect. I think that's a great relationship principle. You get what you expect. Uh, and I believe there's this idea of, of coming to the Lord with expectancy. Number two, go with humility. My, my dad, I remember a couple of years ago. Uh, so my dad, like I mentioned, was a pastor and um, had his PhD, uh, PhD in biblical studies. He was Dr. Dr. Bill Murray, the Bill Murray, we like to say, the Bill Murray. And uh, you know, I remember him telling me one time we were having a, 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 just a dinner discussion with the family and we asked him, you know, dad, tell us what like life is like right now for you in the secret place. What, like, what are you, you chewing on in terms of time with the Lord? And what shifted maybe later in life? And I remember I, f- I found this so profound. He, came, he, he shared across the dinner table, he said, you know, for most of my life being in ministry, getting my PhD, I showed up with an agenda that I was gonna work the scriptures. I was gonna just dissect everything. I'm gonna work the, stri- the, the scriptures. And he goes, over the last couple of years, I just let the scriptures work me. I just show up and, and just soak in the scriptures and see what the Holy Spirit does. I love that. I think sometimes we show up with an agenda before God. I think often we need to show up with a posture of humility and say, God, what's on your agenda? Not what's on our agenda. Lastly, go with patience. Go with patience. Wait upon the Lord, as the Psalms say. Um, You know, I went to, uh, a while ago, I went to this negotiating seminar for work, like sales negotiating. In a couple days, you learned all these crazy negotiating tactics. There was like a CIA guy that was teaching. It was pretty hardcore and awesome. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I remember from this negotiating sem- uh, seminar was this thing called the silent tactic. So like if I was selling you my car for, for $20,000, let's say, and you, you came to me to make an offer on my car and we met in the parking lot and you said, Steven, I can't do 20,000, uh, but I can do 15,000. Then the silent tactic is just me looking at you and kind of rubbing my beard. And what happens is people feel awkwardness or uh, the awkwardness, they fill it with more noise. That's like natural human behavior or they fill the void. And so then you'd say, well, actually, I know I offered 15, but I think I could do 17.5. And the best negotiators look at it and they wouldn't even change. They just keep looking at you, keep looking at you. And then eventually they'd say, all right, I'll do $20,000. But you smoke out people's true intentions 
with the silent tactic. And I think the Lord works that way sometimes in our lives. I do. I think I show up in the secret place with again, my agenda and God do this for me. Will you please, I wanna see this breakthrough at work. And I keep coming and I don't see it. And then eventually I'm like, God, I'm actually just really insecure and I want the pats on my back. It's that simple. I'm just insecure and I just need to learn to trust you more. And then God's like, I gotcha. Let's work on that. So again, amazing what the Lord can do when we just show up and hoist the sail patiently. All right, in closing, um, I wanna give you a real life example. This can be tough for me. Um, and I wanna kind of finish how I started in talking about my dad. Um, but I think it, it is just such a beautiful example of the power of the secret place and somebody living their life um, on a mission. And um, it's actually about my mom who's here. Love you. So my mom and dad had this beautiful marriage. I mean, the, the, the most beautiful of marriages. And uh, so much so, you know, they say there's all these studies that show that, um, that like one of the best things you can do as parents is just love your spouse. That just creates so much safety in the home. And I think my dad took that to an extreme. And um, there were times like I remember being a teenager where, uh, you know, I got in, like a shouting match with my mom and I told her that uh, I thought she was a liar. I was like, you're a liar, mom. And my dad called me into his office. And, and whenever my dad said, uh, instead of your mom said my wife. Yeah. yeah, that's how you knew it got real, real fast. And, and my dad was very calm, but he had that look in his eyes. He said, don't you ever speak to my wife that way ever again. And he said, son, let me give you a lesson in the priorities of this home. God, my wife, space, 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 my sons. <laughs> yes, dad. Yes, dad. I get it. Now, he loved us and uh, he poured out his love on us and was an amazing father, but he made it really clear that uh, he loved his mom first and foremost and or, uh, my, my, our mom first and foremost. Now, where I'm going with this is if you can imagine losing that type of love. That's what my mom's been going through this journey this year. So we're all grieving as, as sons, but nobody's grieving more than, than my mom. Well, fast forward. So we lost my dad in early April, fast forward to September. Um, we find out that my mom got diagnosed with cancer. So she's diagnosed with cancer, uh, going through the worst year of her life. She's all by herself experiencing that. I mean, we can, as sons, we can try to love her through that and we do our best, but it's not the same as if she had my dad. So she's diagnosed with cancer. Uh, I was a wreck. I was a wreck. I feel like I've been pretty stoic through uh, losing my dad, but I was an absolute wreck. I just was like, Lord, this is wave after wave. It's like, we're getting kicked while we're down. And my mom was in shock by it all. I talked to her the day she got diagnosed, like she saw her. And I think in comparison, her cancer diagnosis in comparison with losing the love of her life was, was very minimal. And she was kind of numb to the cancer in comparison to the loss that she's experiencing with my dad. And um, so the next day I wake up that morning, I had a hard time getting out of bed, to be honest with you. It was just, again, going back to David needing to renew your strength. I had just a hard time getting out of bed. And, um, and so I called her when I was on my way to the office just to check in on her that morning. And when I did, she didn't pick up. And so I had these pictures rush into my mind of my mom just being alone in her bed, crying herself to sleep the night before, um, you know, desperate for help. 
And so I'm, I'm feeling the weight of that going in the office. And then five minutes after I called her, she calls me back and she's all peppy. Hey son. I'm like, mom, how are you? You know, lots been happening. Um, and, and she's like, well, it's heavy. It's a lot, but I've just been spending the last few hours just crying out to the Lord in the secret place. And he's been meeting me in the secret place. So two amazing testimonies that happened out of that and out of my mom's diligence of being with the Lord. First, that same week, that same week, she runs a nonprofit called Refuge Coffee. By the way, she founded it with my dad. Any Refuge Coffee fans? We, we just opened one actually in Norcross. I'm on the board. And so if you haven't checked out the one in downtown Norcross, it's awesome. Well, like anybody running a nonprofit, a small nonprofit, financially, there's ups and downs in it. And so she was really worried that same week. She got some bad news financially about her nonprofit. So she's going through that. She's going through a cancer diagnosis. And um, that morning she tells me, well, son, I got great news. I just opened a check in the mail. I got opened the mail and I just got a huge check to refuge. And we applied for a grant 18 months ago that I thought we weren't going to get. But I just checked the mail yesterday, opened it up this morning. We got a huge check in the mail for refuge coffee. So I was like, let's go. Praise God. And then and I was like, well, what's the second piece of good news, mom? She's like, well, uh, your, your dad had, and I had this relationship. This guy went to high school with my dad, Dr. Barber, who was the best doctor for this type of cancer in the entire Southeast. And the first thing I did when I got the diagnosis is I texted him. He called me back right away and said, Kitty, I'm going to take care of you because I know that's what Bill would have wanted me to do. And praise God, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, she's cancer free. And, um, you know, so I, I, I sit here and reflect on my dad's life. I reflect on my mom's life and what they modeled. It's just so beautiful and such a testament to what it means to go to the secret place and build that into the rhythm of your life. And so thank you, mom, for living that example and living that example for this church. We love you. So I just encourage, the, la the last thing I'll say on this is there's a quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I know there's some of you in this room, my hope again is that we're stirring up this desire to go be in the secret place. And I know there's some of you in the room that you're doing this regularly like my mom and just an encouragement and kudos to just keep doing it. There's some of you in this room that, you know, maybe it's just been a tough season and you've lost some of those rhythms in your life. And this is just a reminder and a prompting that, gosh, I need to find my nourishment from something more than this desert, something more than the public place. And it's going back to your first love. And then I think there's some of you that maybe are a little bit afraid. Maybe you've never been to the secret place because you're scared of how the Lord will react. You're scared because the picture in your mind you have of God is maybe not of one of a loving father. Maybe you didn't have a loving father like I did or a loving mom like I did. And so there's something inside of you that's intimidated by going to the secret place. And I just want to remind us of the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15 uh, paints the picture, shows it's the parable. Jesus speaking of the parable, it's talking about his goodness and his love. And there's a dad who is wealthy, lives on a state. He has two sons, one son or uh, both sons request from his dad that he would share in his, his estate and his inheritance with him before he passes away. So the dad, of course, says, I love you, sons. Of course, I'll give you my inheritance or, or your inheritance early. Well, one son goes away and he squanders it. 
He blows it. He gets into things he shouldn't have. And a couple years later, he comes back to his father. And as he's cresting the hill and the father sees his son returning, the son's thinking, man, I'm in for it. I'm getting punishment. I have shame. I have guilt. But the father's there with his arms wide open. He tells his servants, slaughter the fattened calf. We're going to throw a party because I just wanted my son home. And that's the heart of the father is he just wants his children home. So church, I encourage us, no matter where you are on that spectrum, let's just go home to the father. Let's get to the secret place.